Father, uh, teach us your way and, and lead us according to your word. Um, refresh our hearts. We, we, we want to be refreshed in you. And so as you speak to us today, revive our hearts and give us joy in you. Give us joy in following you. Uh, teach us your way that we may rely upon your faithfulness and, and give us an undivided heart that we may fear your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The self-transcendence race, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. The self-transcendence race is the longest uh, running race in the world. It is 3,100 miles, which is um, almost 4,500 kilometers. It is the, the distance, if you were to go from the most northeastern point of Australia in Queensland down to the most southwestern point of Australia in Western Australia. And if you were to run that distance, you will have almost done the self-transcendence race. Um, this race goes on for two months, generally. Uh, you have six hours of the day to eat, wash and sleep. Um, if you spend a lot of time eating, then that means that you've lost your, your six hours to sleep. And then you um, start it all again the next day. And the record for this race is 40 days, nine hours, six minutes and 21 seconds. And over the 23 year history of the self-transcendence race, only 44 people have finished the race. So it's like just under two people every year might actually finish it. Uh, it's a, a grueling race. That's probably an understatement. And to, to complete this grueling ultra endurance race, you have to have set before you this clear vision and understanding of why you are doing this. You don't just hop out of bed and say, I might run for 60 days. You have to have a clear understanding of, of why you would do that. You have to have a vision of, of, of something set before you so that when you face the many times that you just want to quit, uh, and I have not run anywhere near this. I've done a half marathon before, and there were many times through that where I thought, why, why are you doing this, Tom? Why not just stop? Who cares? You have to have something to push through. Now, uh, our life is a race. Like uh, the, the Bible uses that terminology, that phrase many times. Our life is a race. It, it is an endurance race. And what we have our sights set on, that which is before us will determine not only which path we take on the race, but how we run. What we have set before us, the vision we have set before us will determine how we race, whether we run with endurance and faithfulness or whether we run or stumble with weariness and disobedience. Uh, and as Moses wraps up the initial commandments of the Israelites. So remember the first 10 chapters, he's kind of like repeating again and again the importance of walking in obedience to the Lord. Um, he's given the 10 words and all of these instructions for how they are to live. And as the people are about to embark on the last leg of their wilderness wanderings, um, and also at the very beginning of their race in the promised land, uh, God gives the people something to set their sights on. That's what's happening here. God is giving the people something to set their sights on. And the way he says this is verse 26. 
I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. That's very similar language to what we read at the end of the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God says, see, I set before you life and death, good and evil. It's blessing and curse. It's like he's saying there's two ways to live. Do you want to follow me and this path of blessing or do you want to turn away from me and follow the curse? So God gives them a visual reminder of all of the good he is setting before them, as well as a visual reminder of the, the repercussions if they turn away from this good. And in verse 29, in Deuteronomy 11, we read, uh, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Um, we read about this happening later on in chapter 27, where, where um, this is actually carried out. And what, what happened was basically God told Moses to uh, set six heads of the tribes on Mount Ebal and then the other six heads of the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And as you enter into the promised land from uh, the Jordan River, this is as you're looking at me, this is the way they will come across through the Jordan River um, and then into the promised land and you have Jerusalem under here and that the mountains are here. They're right opposite each other and Mount Ebal is to the north and Mount Gerizim is to the south. And uh, the significance of this is that um, their location not only are they directly opposite each other, so it's like you clearly have this visual illustration of like there's blessing here and there's curse in the total opposite direction. You choose which path you want. But Mount Ebal, where the curses were spoken, the people would walk through the middle of the mountains. They would hear the curses on that side. They would hear the blessings on this side. And Mount Ebal, if you were to follow that way, it was as if you were sort of heading um, still in the promised land, but away from Jerusalem away from what would be the capital and what would be the place of God's presence. So you were heading away. If you chose to follow the curses, you would be heading away from God's presence. If you chose to follow the blessings of Mount Gerizim, on the other side of Mount Gerizim was toward Jerusalem, was toward the place of God's presence. So it was this promise that actually the blessing is the presence of God. If you follow the path of blessing, then you go deeper into the presence of God. Unfortunately, as you read Israel's history, sorry, Truman, my daughter's trying to steal something out of your pocket, but don't mind her. Um, as you read um, the history of Israel, uh, we know that unfortunately the Israelites received these curses. They chose to disobey the way of the Lord. A lot of the curses that we read about actually happen to the people of Israel. They are scattered about. They are dispersed. That's how we get the diaspora um, where all of the, the Jews are scattered throughout the world because they disobeyed uh, the commands of the Lord and it brought them to a disastrous end. Now, what we have our sights set on Whatever is set before us will determine how we live. And all of humanity has had to face this question. Um, do we follow the path that God has set for us? Or do we turn away from him and be cut off from God? All of humanity has to face that question. Will you follow the life that the creator of everything has set for you? or you turn away in disobedience. Now, for those of you who might say that you follow Christ now, then there is a difference to, to the context of 
Christians. Um, for us, this side of the cross who have trusted in Jesus, we do not have the same old covenant, blessing and curse, but we are under the new covenant. Jesus has brought about the new covenant. Now, Paul describes this in Galatians, which we'll go through in another several weeks. But he says in Galatians 3, 13 to 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus in coming took the curse of the disobedience of God's people and the disobedience of humanity upon himself. He became a curse because it said, curses everyone who is hung upon a tree. He was cursed. Remember, we went over last week. He was uh, executed outside of the camp. He was taken outside of the gates, cut off from God's presence. He became a curse for us. He took upon himself the disobedience of God's people So that, Paul goes on to say, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, we'll unpack this a lot more in several weeks. But basically, he's saying Christ has taken the curse upon himself. So you're not in this place where you have a a blessing and a curse. Actually, Jesus has come and he's taken the curse upon himself to then bring you into the blessing, which is Christ himself. Christ is the blessing. He is God himself. So we don't exactly have the same choice of covenant blessing and curse. We are under the new covenant since Christ has become a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing, which is Christ himself. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have received the blessing. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. So we um, are now, by the grace of God, in this place where the curse has been uh, taken by Christ and by our faith, our trust in Jesus, we receive the blessing. Now, we're not off the hook uh, because with that said, there is still a choice that we have to make. And actually, uh, it seems all the more significant because it is a daily choice that we as followers of Jesus have to make. And that is the choice to either follow this path that leads to life or this path that leads to death. It's a choice that is synonymous with our uh, choice or decision to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And what we choose to set before us will determine what path we are on. See, we should understand this as we Look at the example of the Israelites having uh, God set before them this this, um, blessing and this curse. We should understand our context as um, what we set before ourselves, what we choose to set before ourselves, because what we choose to set as our vision will become the evidence of whether we are actually following this path that leads to life or this path that leads to death. What we choose to set before us and what we set before us in simple terms can just be understood as what we set our hearts upon, what we set our minds upon, what we think about, what occupies our time, what we treasure. That's what we set before us, what we hold on to. So what do you have set before you? What do you have set before you? What do you think about the most? What do you treasure in your heart? What is actually set before you? What drives you? Is it your career? Is it your comfort? Is it control? Status? 
What is it that actually is set before you that drives you? Do we choose to set before us? This really comes down to two questions. Do we choose to set before us Christ and the glory of God? Or really, do we choose to set before us our own desires and the glory of man? That's sort of what it boils down to. Are we going to set before us Christ and his purpose, his glory, or are we going to set before us our own desires? And Christ might make that happen, but really we're living for our own glory. What we have set before us in our spiritual eyesight will determine which path we walk on. Now, we should understand this like a compass. Um, no one really uses compasses anymore because we have phones and we have GPS. But if you were out uh, trekking in the woods, you might have a compass that would um, tell you which way uh, true north is and then which way you need to go from there. So a compass has to be calibrated correctly. You have to have true north set before you to know which way east and west and south is which way you need to go and if you do not have the correct north if you do not have the correct uh, the, the true north for you then it's not calibrated correctly you're going to go off track you're not going to realize it now in our lives what we have set before us what our hearts are set upon that is our true north whether it is our own desires or whether it is Christ, that becomes the driving force behind what is directing us, what we have set before us, what we cast our vision on. And so if we do not have the right true north, then we will also go off track. And the problem is that we travel on autopilot. We don't really think, we don't really consciously think about what it is that we actually have set before us. Um, how often do we stop and think, what's actually driving me? How often do we reflect upon that? And so because we're on autopilot, we don't realize what it is that is set before us. Now, anyone who would profess to follow Christ would hopefully say, well, it's Jesus. It's taught that in Sunday school, it's Jesus. He's the true north. He is my guide. He is set before me. He is the one I'm following. But do our lives demonstrate that this is really true? If someone was to look in at your life, would they say, well, there's something different about what's driving that person? Something different to, to me. And asking this question is the start of recalibrating your life compass. Asking that question of what is actually set before me? What do I have my heart set on? That is the start of recalibrating your life compass. And so often it boils down to this question, to, to, to either follow Christ, do I follow Christ or do I follow self? And this is especially the case in our day where the cultural mantras of um, our age is like, you do you. Just you be you. Do yourself, man. You know, be kind to yourself. You've got to treat yourself. And the way we calibrate ourselves is to just kind of get some me time. I just need to get some me time. I just need to sort of search within, you know, find my true self. I just need to kind of go off on a retreat and, and get some, some me time. Um, some of which is good. It's not all bad, but it's certainly directed toward a form of self-centered therapy that is only looking within yourself. And it goes directly in the face of Jesus saying, whoever clings to your life will lose it. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you set your own desires and dreams before you, then you are clinging to a life which you will lose. 
because it's not the life that you were meant to live. So in contrast to this is the daily choice to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And the wonderful thing, here's the wonderful thing about the daily choice to pick up your cross and follow Christ, to deny yourself. It is that in denying yourself and following Christ, you actually end up becoming your true self since your true self is only found in the restoration which God brings in Jesus Christ. That is your true self. That is who you were meant to be. So God, in calling you to deny yourself, is not calling you to give up anything that's valuable. It's, it's, it's like if you had a little three-bedroom house and I said, burn your house down, and you would say, you're crazy. And I said, well, burn it down because I've got a mansion for you next door. Just burn it down. It would be much easier to burn it down then. Whereas we cling to our life as though it's something valuable, but Jesus is saying, give it up. It's not, come find true life in me. You can't have both. This is why Jesus says, uh, whoever gives up their life for my sake will actually find it. That's where your life will be found in Christ. To deny your own self-centered pleasures is actually to find the most long-lasting pleasure since that is found in the pursuit of Christ. That's where true joy and pleasure is. Is Christ your true north? Is he at the forefront of your mind? And if, if you're hearing this and thinking, man, does that mean that I, I, I have to be thinking about Jesus all the time? And every decision I make, I have to stop and ask that question, what would Jesus do? I have to kind of um, just be uh, totally um, overwhelmed with, with thoughts about Jesus. And uh, having Christ as your true north doesn't necessarily mean that you only ever think about Jesus or that every decision you make, you have to stop and say, what would Jesus do? And then you act upon that. It means that Jesus is now the, the lens by which you see everything else and the filter by which everything else in your life comes through. So to give an example, uh, I'm obviously a dad. You've heard my daughter, Eliora, many times. Um, I was just thrust into to being a dad, as with everyone. No one, as much as we might like, gets the chance to like have a kid one day a week in the lead up to being a, a dad. So you start to get used to it. You're just sort of thrust, thrust into it. And for the first um, several weeks, uh, it was extremely difficult. I was overwhelmed. Um, I, I um, had never been all that comfortable around children. I was just learning um, how to actually be a dad. What should I do as a dad? But um, after not that very long, really, all of a sudden, being a dad just becomes the lens by which I view everything. Um, I don't stop and think, oh, what should I do as a dad now for my daughter and I kind of jump into that and then I think now what do I want to do for myself it's just the lens by which I view everything as a dad I, I saw the world through that I, I made decisions naturally based on what was best for my daughter and I didn't have to consciously think about that it was just who I was now the reason for that was because I was constantly around Eliora I never forgot that I was a, a dad because she was always there. I was always there with her. So I was always making decisions in that way. If you are constantly in communion with Christ, if you have regular disciplines, both corporately gathering like this, but individually, if you have a life that is in communion with him, then you won't be stopping at every decision 
it won't be as though you have to think, I should be thinking about Jesus now. It just becomes something that is ingrained within you. That's the importance of gathering together. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together as some have. You must gather together because it's how we stir one another on. It's how we keep each other calibrated so that Christ is our true north. Whereas if Christ is not, if he is not your true north, if you are not in communion with him, then it will feel weird. It'll kind of feel like you're jumping into, oh, I guess I better be a Christian tonight. I better think about what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would Jesus do? This is the importance of being in communion. And the way that we then uh, get to this point is precisely what we are doing now, which is recalibrating our life compass to make sure that Jesus is our true north, to discern what is actually set before us. So what I want to do now is just um, to go through two indicators for us that Christ may not be your, your true north. There is a need of recalibration. And then I want to finish um, with how we actually recalibrate our, our spiritual compass. So firstly, um, two indicators that Christ may not be your true north. The first one is that your life revolves around you. When you organize your week, it is based solely on what is best for you. Uh, it is your time. People might fit into it so long as they might benefit you. It might be enjoyable for you. So your life is solely um, arranged around how you are going to flourish most and where perhaps charity and Christian activities align with that, then that's great. But, but where they clash, it's probably going to be either your preference that wins or a very reluctant um, decision to, to do something that you don't want to do. And this may demonstrate that Christ is not your true north and that the love of Christ is, is not actually in you. And that sounds like a very confronting thing, but the reality is that the love of Christ is a selfless love. We know that because the love of Christ is seen in him giving up his life for us, in God sending his own son on the cross, in giving of himself. It's a selfless love. And that love is the love which has been poured out into our hearts and which overflows within us. It is a love that gives of itself for the sake of others. So if this is the case, then we ought to be demonstrating a selfless love where our lives are lived for the sake of others. It's very consistent with what Paul says to consider others as more significant than you are. Think more highly of others. That's the love of Christ within you. Don't live only for yourself. We live for the good of others. So we involve other people in. And as I've said before, the most important thing about this is that it's not simply inviting other people in. You might be a very sociable person, but you're inviting other people in that you enjoy hanging out with. It's going to be beneficial to you. And Jesus is very clear to say, but just everyone loves those who love them. Everyone does that. That's not, not anything special. We're actually called to love those who hate us, to hang out with people who we might not particularly uh, gel with, but we desire to form a connection with for the sake of that person. We desire to live for their good. So if your schedule includes masses of time with other people, but it's only people you actually want to hang out with, then is that really a selfless love? That, that's, that's more of a self-centered uh, socializing routine. 
where your life simply revolves around you, then it might be time to recalibrate your spiritual compass. The second danger is if you're driven by comfort. Um, this is the, the predominant mindset of our culture, self-pleasure and aversion to cost. Uh, I've said this before, Sinclair Ferguson once said, the, the early church um, from 2000 years ago, the early church um, feared false teaching and welcomed persecution. And the modern church um, fears persecution and welcomes false teaching. It's the total opposite where we are very scared of, of cost and aversion and we will let almost anything into um, the church. Uh, our aversion to cost is one of the most dangerous indications that what we have set before us is not Christ. And this was, was very convicting for me as I was writing this out, just noticing a lot of, a lot of ways in which I'm just driven by my own comfort. And there are thousands of churches out there that will cater to a comfort-seeking lifestyle. Many that will um, be totally fine with a life that is built only for self. And this was always the case. And that's why Paul warned about this to um, Christians through Timothy like 2,000 years ago when he said the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. He's saying people will not be able to endure sound teaching. Why? Why will they not be able to endure sound teaching? Because sound, to, sound teaching requires endurance. It makes you feel a little bit comfortable. Sound teaching reminds us that we have a heart problem. Sound teaching reminds us that we have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Sound teaching reminds me that I actually have to live for the sake of others. So I actually do have to invite people in, maybe even past my bedtime as we joke about, but I actually have to live for the sake of others, not just fit them into my routine. See, if we had Christ set before us as our true north, then we would see the suffering servant who chose the way of the cross who chose to be executed and then calls us to follow him. If you are driven by comfort, then Christ may not be set before you. Now, what's the solution to this? We continue the recalibration process and we do this by heeding the words of the writer of Hebrews. This is what we'll finish with. Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we have the same picture. We have the picture of this race, and we have the picture of something which must be set before us. Now, just two very quick grammatical things to note that I think will help us understand the weight of this passage. Uh, the word for race here in Hebrews chapter 12 is, is a much heavier word than simply a running race. There's other words in, in the Greek language that um, mean the word race. But this is actually a word that we get the word agony from. 
So it's, it's, it's a word in Greek where this is the only place that it is translated as race. Everywhere else it is translated as fight or struggle or conflict. It, it's, it conveys this idea of agony, like agonizing. So, so we're told to run this agonizing race like the 4,500 kilometer race, like it's a agonizing race. It's not easy. It requires endurance. And how do we do it? This is the, the second word that I want to point out by looking to him. But this isn't just the normal word for looking. It actually means to fix one's eyes without distraction. Like it's, it's one thing to um, find something that might be helpful for me and just to sort of cast my eyes upon it and think, yeah, that's helpful. It's quite another thing to fix my eyes upon something without being distracted. That's like me saying, You're, that's all I'm going to be looking at right now. I'm not going to allow any distractions in. I'm just totally consumed by this. And we are told to fix our eyes upon Jesus. So we endure this agonizing path while fixing our eyes upon Christ. But how does, how does this passage actually help us to recalibrate? I think there's something more significant. If Jesus is not our true north, it's because we're looking to something else. We have something else set before us. So we need something captivating. We need to be captivated by Christ. And I wonder if many of our struggles with having Jesus set before us is that we don't have a captivating view of Jesus. We don't have a captivating view of our Savior. We might have an idea of Jesus that is distant and not all that relatable to our lives. So having faith in Christ is a bit more like a sort of superstitious practice. Well, I have my faith and it kind of sounds a little bit superstitious. But the author here is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the founder, the author, the starter, and the perfecter, the one who completes your faith. So we don't have a wafty faith in the idea that things will somehow get better. We don't say, well, I have my faith. You know, things will somehow get better. We actually have something concrete. Our faith has an object. The object is the one who started our faith, Jesus. And why is he the founder of our faith? Have you ever thought about that? Why is he the founder? Why is he the starter of our faith? Because he himself led the life of faithfulness to the Father's will. He lived just as we lived. He lived a life of complete faithfulness and obedience and trust in the Father, which is the life that we Never could. And if he did not, if Jesus did not live that life, if he just stayed away, which God rightfully could have, if he just stayed away, then what would we be trusting in? What would we be trusting in? We would not have the perfect example for us. We would not have someone who have actually lived the life that we never could. What would we be trusting in? There would be no atonement for sin. There would be no one who has lived a righteous life before God. What would we be trusting in? It would be a wafty faith that would have no trust. It would just be a trust in trust. It's like if you were on a walk and ahead of you was this treacherous path, like it's on a cliff face. And as you come up to the, the track, 
Um, you can actually see the cliff just crumbling away, rocks are falling down. You think there is no way I would ever walk across that. And you have a friend there who says, you know what, I think you can do it. You'll be right. Just go do it. Don't be a wuss. Just go walk across it. And you're thinking, no way. That's, I would be an idiot. Like I would fall to my death. But imagine if you then had a friend in front of this path who said, you know what, let me do it. Let me walk across the path. Let me walk across it for you and, and show you. Let me walk across the path and get to the other side. And it's not even, that's not where the example stops. It's not like he walks across it and then says, okay, come over. You would still probably be terrified. It's as if he then says, okay, you know what? I've done it. Now I'm going to come and guide you along this path. I'm going to walk with you and make sure that you do not fall in any way. I'm going to uphold you and keep you faithfully walking along this path until I present you at the end. So we do not have a savior who we cannot relate to. That's what it means that he started our faith. He led, he walked across the path. He walked across the treacherous path that we never could. He lived a life of faithfulness. And then he is the one who completes our faith because then he comes and he walks us along the treacherous path. He sustains us all the days of our lives. He perfects our faith. And if that wasn't captivating enough, just to finish, we read, uh, Jesus walked that walk. He lived that life of endurance through the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? It was the eternal joy that has existed between Father and Son for all eternity. The joy, imagine the kind of joy that would exist where there is no sin present, no wickedness, just pure joy between the Father and Son, which Jesus gave up for a moment to live this life on earth. And it says, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of being reconciled to the Father, of completing the task that he had to do, which was to live the life that we never could, to take our sin upon himself, to die upon the cross, to raise from the dead and to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to be restored to joy. And not only that, but then to then pour out that joy by the Spirit to us. If you've read the parable of the talents, which is where you have um, this example of these faithful stewards who's, who basically do what their master says and live faithfully. And what does the master say? And the master is this picture of God the Father. And the master says to the faithful servants, um, after they have walked their walk, after they have been faithful in their task, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then he says, come and enter into the joy of your master. Come and enter into my joy. Just as Jesus had the joy set before him, we endure, we, we race this race because of the joy set before us. We hold on to that uh, picture of our father saying, come and enter into the joy of your master. Come and enter in. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And why do we have hope in that? We have hope in it because we 
look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith.